as we walk closer and closer to Easter, there should be this sense building in us of anticipation. We're, we're getting there. It's coming. It's almost here. That's what Lent is about. It, it seems to me, however, that we, we find that more during the Advent season than we typically do the Lenten season. As Advent gets closer and closer to Christmas for a multitude of reasons, we get real excited about Christmas. But for some reason, Easter, we often seem to get a little less excited about. There's not as much celebration around it. and In some ways, it doesn't seem as majestic, maybe as precious. And yet Easter is the pinnacle of the Incarnation. This God in the flesh experience was always building towards a resurrected king. The baby in the the manger was, was here, always moving towards the cross and the empty tomb. This is a great celebration of our faith. So we should be getting excited as Easter is two weeks away. As we walk through Lent, some of you have have chosen to give away some small love during this time. Something that you appreciate, something that you enjoy. You've chosen to give it away. And Easter is the opportunity that you have to pick it back up. So there's some anticipation because of that. And yet, if Lent has truly done its work, when we pick that thing back up, we should find that it doesn't hold quite the same value that it once did. That in fact, because of our laying it down for a time, we have had the opportunity to do what Lent and laying down of small loves is supposed to do. Build for us greater love of Christ. So as we get closer and closer to Easter and next Sunday's Palm Sunday and, and Easter comes in two weeks, we will celebrate. We will celebrate the resurrection. We will celebrate the cross and we will celebrate the tomb that has brought us salvation. The cross and the tomb that have brought us life. The cross and the tomb that has brought us rescue. Rescue from ourselves. Rescue from the evil that overwhelms our world. Rescue from the sin that keeps us more distant from God than we were created to be. We'll celebrate the resurrection and salvation and new life on Easter and on the days building towards it. But before we get there, before we get to that place, we have to pause for a moment as we continue to talk about this this new way. This new way that Jesus had come to, to teach about and to model and to call his followers into. This new way that wasn't different but was connected to his Jewish faith as he was continuing to move forward. But we have to stop because there's an important piece of that that we sometimes miss that we can't miss. John chapter 12, uh, we read verses 20 through 33, um, I, I think are an odd passage. The passage tells us that some foreigners, some Greek men have come to Jerusalem for Passover. They probably don't know everything that's going on. They don't fully understand all of the worship ceremonies that surround the Passover and the celebration that was given to the Jewish people from Egypt and and all that's happening in that moment. But at the very least, they're interested in what's taking place. They're intrigued by this faith. 
At the very least, they are interested in the rabbi that some are beginning to believe is the Messiah that had been promised. So these men find their way to this teacher's disciples. They find their way to Philip. And I don't know if they had some connection beforehand. It tells us where he's from. So maybe it's saying that they had some kind of in. So they found their way to Philip and they said, hey, Philip, we'd like to meet Jesus. And Philip goes and tells Andrew and... Philip and Andrew go and tell Jesus. I'm I'm not even sure why all the passing it through the channels of what's going on. But together they go and they go to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, there's some foreigners who have come to meet you. There's some Greek men who've come to meet you. They've asked if they can meet Jesus. Now, in my mind, the very next step is obvious. There are a couple responses that Jesus could answer with, right? Obvious ones. Well, sure, bring them in. Let's have a meal. This is, I love meeting new people. Bring them on in. Option one. Option two, Jesus says, I don't have room or space or time for visitors today. How about we schedule an appointment and, and we'll get together with them in the next few days or down the road or maybe this evening. You know, he could, he could put them off somehow or he could welcome them in. And yet we find that Jesus' response is neither of those. Instead, Jesus begins to, to do what almost seems like rambling through these thoughts that maybe are just bouncing around in his mind as he talks about seeds and planting and death and new life and the ways in which new life comes and lots and lots of it comes if you take a seed and you plant it and it dies. And it's easy to go, hold on, what in the world is he talking about? Has he run down some tangent and forgotten what's happening or what's going on? Is he, is he lost down some rabbit trail? Has he forgotten entirely that they just came to him and said, Hey, there, there are some people at the door that want to meet you. It's, it's, it is such a strange response. But as we spend time in it, as we try and ponder what is going on, what's happening in the text, I wonder if it's also possible that Jesus was still deeply connected to the request that had been made of him. The request that said, we want to see Jesus. I wonder if he was deeply requested, deeply connected to the requests of the visitors, deeply connected to the requests of the disciples, deeply connected to the requests of those people who would surround him to hear him teaching If maybe he was even more deeply connected to their requests than they were. If maybe he understood what was behind their requests in ways that they didn't even know were there yet. You see, everyone that surrounded Jesus, all of these different people, whether they were, were, were visitors or foreigners that had come for the first time, or there were crowds that were surrounding him, or there were the disciples that were constantly around him, they all had an idea of what the Messiah was. And we've talked about this before. Before, we've talked about ideas of Messiah and what they anticipate in the Messiah. But the reality is, we can't get away from that. In just the last few weeks, we've talked about it. But we can't leave it because the passages continue to come back to this question of what is the Messiah. And even more importantly than that, the disciples couldn't get in their heads what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. No matter how many times he tried to convince them that, yes, he was the Messiah, but that his role would look different than they expected. They couldn't get it. 
They couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. They couldn't understand what Jesus was doing. They couldn't understand where Jesus was going. They knew that his, his teachings on the kingdom didn't exactly line up with theirs. But, but I wonder if they didn't just chalk this up to some slight misunderstanding. Maybe the misunderstanding was theirs. I wonder if they thought that maybe the misunderstanding was his. He just didn't quite understand yet what it meant to be Messiah. But they believed that that's exactly who he was. They believed that this was the Messiah. This was the future king. He would rule a kingdom. He would overthrow the enemy. He would be their leader. They believed he was their savior. They believed he would triumph. And guess what? They were right. And they were wrong. Everything that they had to say about Jesus, all of these beliefs that they had were true. But between this request that we read in John chapter 12 that these foreigners could come and meet him and the triumph that was to come, there was an incredible tragedy that would strike that they had no room in their heart or mind or soul for. That they couldn't understand, that they couldn't fathom, that they couldn't wrap themselves around, that they couldn't grasp at all. You see, Jesus' tangent that he walked through illustrated for them this tragedy with the image of a seed as he talked about this seed that didn't fully have its value until it was buried, until it died, until it became something new, a plant that then sprouted and sprung off new plants. In this image, in this illustration, he was illustrating his own story. He spoke... Of the tragedy that was coming. He spoke of his own suffering that was imminent. And he invited them to come with him. Now it's possible that if you haven't already begun your nap that you will in the next few moments. So I want you to hear this before you get there. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because probably the most important thing that I think that we have to grasp in this. Now, there's all kinds of things that are coming after that I think are important, too. So if you manage to stay awake, you'll catch some of those. But if nothing else, I want to make sure that you catch this. We can never fully grasp what it means to follow after Jesus unless we take hold of the expectation that this new way mandates that Jesus and his followers walk the way of suffering. The new way isn't possible unless it includes the way of suffering. Now, the reality is, as I look back at what we talk about as we talk about following Jesus, what we talk about as we talk about coming to Christ, we have often, too often, hidden this piece of what it means to come and follow Jesus. Too often we've hidden this from the expectations that Christ has over us. Because let's be honest, suffering isn't pretty. Suffering isn't sexy. Suffering isn't desirable. Suffering is painful. Suffering doesn't make people want to follow Jesus. And it doesn't make them want to join our churches. 
So instead of talking about it, we've covered over it. We've moved past it. And I think the truth is that Jesus never got overly concerned about whether or not people got excited about this new way. Even when it included suffering. He was unwilling to change the message. He was unwilling to change the expectations. He was unwilling to make allowances for those who couldn't stomach the tragedy. Jesus wouldn't let the disciples off the hook. Jesus wouldn't let these visitors off the hook. Jesus wouldn't let the crowds off the hook. And friends, Jesus will not let us off the hook. If we are going to follow after Jesus, it requires that we choose the way of suffering. Isn't that, doesn't that sound fun? Isn't that exciting? You're like, hey, he woke me up to say that part. I'd have been okay if I missed that part. Now, before we all go running, because there is that temptation, that desire, that, that question in us. And maybe we should just all run the other way. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe we shouldn't do it. Let's talk about a couple of the things that we understand about suffering that we find here from Jesus with regards to what it means for us to suffer. Here's one of the first ones. Suffering brings transformation. If we're ever going to find our way to the life that Jesus has promised, we must walk through death. Before the resurrection could come, Jesus had to face the cross. Before we can experience new life in Christ, we too must experience death. We have to die to our own selfishness. We have to die to our own self-centeredness. We have to die to our idolatries. We have to die to the demands that we place on Jesus. We have to die to this longing inside of us that we actually get to be God. We get to call the shots. We get to make the decisions. We have to die to all of that. We have to put it to death. New life requires that you and I die to the old. Discipleship, which we talk about all the time here. We believe we exist as a church to make disciples. We believe discipleship is the faith journey that people are on from knowing nothing about God to being a faithful follower of Christ. And that every person is on this journey. Every person is moving forward. But discipleship is not a slight adjustment of our life so that we can one day experience the benefits of heaven. Discipleship is a full transformation into something new. It means that you and I become something brand new. Discipleship means that we experience the love of God. We experience the salvation of Jesus. We experience the power of the Holy Spirit in such significant ways that we are changed. In something I was listening to this week, I heard somebody ask the question. There are so many of us that have been involved in churches for years and years and years and years. And how many of us are actually changing in any way? We want Jesus. But a lot of us don't want anything to do with change. 
We want Jesus, but not if it means we have to look different, not if it means we have to think different, not if it means we have to talk different, not if it means we have to live different. We want all of the good promises that Jesus brings. And, and, and don't mistake, there are lots of them. The songs that we sang of celebration of our good father, it is throughout the scripture. We celebrate that God is good. And that's how we can walk through suffering because suffering brings transformation. Suffering brings something new, but too often we want all the good things that Jesus has to offer. But we're not willing to take on any of the costs of what it means to actually become a follower of Jesus. First, Jesus teaches us that suffering brings transformation. The second thing that we notice is that although we must choose suffering... We don't have to be excited about it. Verse 27 in John chapter 12 that we read. It is a powerful and heartbreaking passage for me as I read it. Here's what it says. It says, now my soul is deeply troubled. These are the words of Jesus. My soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Jesus wasn't excited about suffering. In fact, the scriptures tell us Jesus was troubled. And N.T. Wright, a, a famous theologian and Bible teacher, asked the question, Is your picture of God big enough for that? Can you and I handle the image of a Savior who was troubled? Can we handle the image of a Savior who, who likely was scared, lonely, confused, disappointed, frustrated? Can our idea of who Jesus was, can it handle all of those images? Those images that in some ways highlight the humanity that Jesus had as he was both fully God and fully human. I, I don't know about you, but as I think about it, that image of God is, that image of Jesus, God in the flesh is, is actually a bit relieving for me. I find a little comfort in knowing that Jesus wasn't excited about pain. I find a little comfort in knowing that Jesus had second thoughts. I find some comfort in knowing that Jesus would have dodged suffering if it was possible. Because I feel that way. I feel that way as I too wrestle with the idea of suffering. As I have struggles and fears and difficulties. It is Good to know that even in my desires to avoid suffering, I stand in the footsteps of Jesus. There is comfort that I have found in that. However, we can't stop there. Because stopping there misses that as Jesus was troubled about what he was going to walk through, there was also a statement that followed up the end of this. And the more important question that rises for us, as we know, hey, we don't have to be excited about suffering. We have to be willing to ask the question, can I stand with Jesus in his next statement? Because in verse 28, the very beginning of it, here's what it says. Father, bring glory to your name. I find comfort in the reality that Jesus was not excited about his suffering. But then I have to come back and ask the question, but do I have faith to choose suffering even when I don't desire it? Do I have enough faith to walk the way of suffering even when I long for something else? 
Do I have the faith to follow Jesus even when I'd like to run the other way? Do I have enough faith to stop complaining about how my suffering is unfair and simply grasp that this is a reality of what it means to live as a part of the kingdom of God? Suffering brings brings transformation. We have to choose suffering, but but we don't have to be excited about it. A third thing I want to point out that I think is important here is that God brings beauty to suffering. You notice Jesus, or God's response to the prayer that Jesus prayed, the end of verse 28 gives us what that is. It says, then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I've already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. Suffering was necessary, but it was not the end. Death was required, but it was followed by the miraculous. The cross was the way, but the tomb was actually... Sorry, my watch is talking to me at the moment. I have no idea why. The cross was the way, but the tomb was actually the destination. This death of Jesus was responsible for bringing life that was promised. And as his followers, as followers of Jesus, as men and women who want to walk in the way of Christ, we have to understand that it was both his death and our death to self in which we find life. The resurrected life that is promised is promised to everyone who's willing to walk through the suffering of Jesus and through our own suffering. The glory of God is proven through both the cross and the empty tomb. The glory of God is proven through our dying to self and our finding new life. The glory of God is proven through suffering and through the multitude of ways in which God brings redemption. And we could end there, but the danger of ending there is that we might miss the reality that even though God brings redemption, we don't always get to see the redemption. We don't always get to feel the ways in which God redeems our suffering. We don't always get to experience that redemption. We may or may not see God's glory found in our suffering that we've walked. Our suffering that we've chosen. But we can rest assured because the scriptures promise us over and over again that God is bringing triumph to tragedy. The cross will bring us to the empty tomb. Lent will bring us to Easter. And death will bring us life. But this new way, this new way of walking with Jesus requires that you and I also walk the way of suffering. Pray with me, would you?
Jesus, as we come before you, I am in awe of you. I'm in awe at the ways in which you chose to be selfless. I'm in awe at the ways in which you walked into that which you least desired. Because love said it was necessary. I am in awe at how deeply you love us. Even though we refuse to fully follow after you. Even though we like to pick and choose between the pieces and the parts of what it means to follow you that we like. Jesus, I am in awe of you. And it is my hope that we as a church come together and we stand in awe of who you are and what you're doing and how you're working. And that we choose to walk through suffering with you because this is what it means to follow. And then in our proclamation that we want to be followers of Jesus, that we are willing to be all in to what it means to follow after you. And following doesn't just mean living in your presence for all eternity. Following means that the difficult way of the kingdom begins here and now. And that way includes the way of suffering. So give us courage to choose you. Give us faith to follow even when it's hard. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.